Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Nice! Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Yeah! Phone plan, streams, and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, January 13th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the growing market for non-alcoholic beers and a new undistilled non-whiskey that's arrived just in time for dry January. Plus, the search for a new king of a tiny island. And the debate over ghost flights is heating up in Europe. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I mentioned the other day that the zero-proof or non-alcoholic beverage sector is growing rapidly, expected to grow 31% by 2024. Jim Vorrell over at Paste Magazine has been following this trend for a while and has noticed a particular turnaround in the non-alcoholic beer market and the perception of the market. So Vorrell observes that for years, non-alcoholic beer was associated with people who couldn't drink beer, whether for dietary reasons or, you know, a twisted perception that they couldn't handle it responsibly. Along with that, the product itself was seen as something less than traditional alcoholic beer. And this perception has been particularly pernicious in the craft beer scene, where folks are liable to turn up their nose at something that they might view as, as Vorrell phrased it, quote, soulless, foul-tasting corruptions of the beverage they love, end quote. But an explosion of new products from brands of all sizes has been changing that. Vorrell explains, quote, Years ago, saying non-alcoholic beer would have universally implied a very narrow range of products, all of them seemingly designed to poorly mimic the bland drinkability of American light lager. Today's N.A. beer, on the other hand, has finally improved to the point where it can acknowledge and embrace a representative range of the myriad styles that make up the craft beer rainbow. There are still copious versions of N.A. light lager out there, but there are also more than passable N.A amber ales, porters, stouts, pale ales, IPAs, and even the occasional take on N.A. wild ales or sours, which represent the bleeding edge of non-alcoholic innovation, beers that are so close to the real thing that a blind taster might actually not know the difference. It's the participation of these smaller craft breweries, companies seen as legitimate and respected by the craft beer geek public, that has helped N.A. beer along in its image rehabilitation, determinedly scrubbing away the stigma of N.A. beer as an inherently inferior product. A certain segment of the market was never going to be interested in something like Bud Zero or Heineken 0.0, even if they represent a quantum leap forward in flavor over that decades-old bottle of O'Doul's. But an N.A. pale ale made by the local craft brewery around the corner? That's enticing enough an idea to make even someone who has turned up their nose at N.A. beer for decades curious. This is how barriers are broken down, and how beer drinkers begin to expand their definition of what beer really means to them. 
end quote. And a stat I find particularly convincing from Voril is that according to Nielsen, 78% of non-alcoholic beverage buyers say they also consume traditional beer, wine, or spirits. So the idea that someone is drinking non-alcoholic beverages because they don't drink alcohol turns out to not really be the case anymore. It's now just part of a balanced and diverse palate. I'm actually being convinced myself in real time as I read this. Voral quoted Mitch Cobb, a co-founder of Upstreet Craft Brewing, who told Forbes, quote, We see this a lot in our tap rooms and retail stores. People will come in to have a beer after work, followed by two N.A. beers, or will drink N.A. beer during the week and traditional craft beer on the weekend, or buy both four-packs of IPAs and N.A. beer for their party. End quote. Now, as a lightweight who genuinely enjoys the taste and diversity of beers, I might have to start doing just that. But anyways, the non-alcoholic market is not just about beers, although they have been the easiest to tap. This month, in honor of Dry January, whiskey brand Whistlepig have introduced zero-proof rye non-whiskey called Piggyback Devil Slide, quoting Food & Wine, Touted as the world's first 100% rye-aged non-whiskey, the limited-edition Whistle Pig Piggyback Devil's Slide, which is less than one proof, aka 0.5% ABV, is aged for six years before being undistilled at the Whistle Pig Farm and Distillery. The results are described as uniquely quaffable, while also maintaining the original's bold, complex flavor. End quote. Megan Ireland, Whistlepig's whiskey blender, added, quote, At Whistlepig, we're constantly innovating to unlock the potential of rye, ultimately in pursuit of the best possible quality and taste experience for our fans. We made the Devil's Slide, a limited edition of our flagship piggyback 100% rye, to support their resolutions, give back to bartenders who will miss them, and to challenge expectations on the level of craft and quality a non-alk can deliver. Age statements have never been done before in this space, and just as with a well-aged whiskey, it makes all the difference. End quote. As an added bonus, 100% of the rye non-whiskey's proceeds will be going to the U.S. Bartenders Guild, which supports un- and underemployed bartenders. And going back to Voral from Paste Magazine, he says what makes this rye from Whistlepig so different is that aging. Most other attempts at non-alcoholic spirits never contained any alcohol to begin with. He says, quote, Whereas a standard pale ale can more or less function without the flavor of alcohol derived from fermentation, a whiskey-like product is often entirely lost without the backbone of ethanol and flavors derived from distillation. A whiskey without ethanol is like a ship without a hull. It can barely be said to exist at all. End quote. And he goes on discussing the process Whistlepig may have employed, quote, Undistilled is just a buzzword rather than a scientific process. It's unclear what actual method Whistlepig is using to remove the alcohol. It's presumably similar to one of several methods used to make non-alcoholic beer, where the alcohol is either removed via heating or pressurized vacuum heating or a unique method of filtration. Ultimately, this leaves a scant amount of alcohol intact. Whistlepig notes that Devil's Slide is between 0.5% and 1% ABV, which technically makes Devil's Slide a one-proof non-whiskey. Even if you drank an entire 750-milliliter bottle, it would be like consuming five ounces of a standard beer. End quote. 
And considering Whistlepig basically had to destroy whiskey they'd spent six years aging to make this, it's not surprising other brands haven't tried this method yet, or that this is a limited edition release. While the Piggyback Devil Slide, according to Varel, has a great smell to it and tasted alright mixed with some ginger ale, he was not impressed with its visual appearance or its taste on its own. He cops that it's better than most other non-alcoholic spirit attempts yet, but it seems like there is still much work to be done in the non-alcoholic spirits sector before it reaches the new appeal of non-alcoholic beers. I've talked about micronations a few times on this show, political entities that claim sovereign status but are not formally recognized by any international governments. They can be anywhere from as small as a briefcase to as large as a whole chunk of a continent. Peel Island, off the coast of northwest England, is not a micronation. It's a real, recognized island owned by the town of Barrow and Furness, but part of its tradition gives off real micronation vibes. The 50-acre island is home to just two main structures, the ruins of a 14th century castle and a pub called the Ship Inn. For centuries, the only inhabitants of the island have been the pub's landlord and sometimes his wife. Only not the same two people, of course, it's a position that is occasionally passed down to subsequent individuals, and it comes with the title, King of Peel. And currently, Peel Island is in search of a new king. From The Guardian, quote, Barrow Borough Council is seeking to recruit a landlord on a 10-year lease in time for the season starting in April. A report to counselors describes Peel Island as a unique place, but any operator needs to appreciate the constraints offered by power, weather, access, and its location within an area of site of special scientific interest. As well as running the pub, the successful applicant will need to manage and maintain the island itself. It makes no reference to the island's more unusual traditions, but they unquestionably exist. Whoever is in charge of the pub is crowned King of Peel, and a ceremony involving a rusty saber which concludes with buckets of beer being poured over their head. Any punter who unwittingly sits on the throne has to buy drinks for everyone. End quote. The king can also bestow knighthood upon certain worthy individuals who also get the same buckets of beer poured over their head treatment after being knighted. And it's not just its ongoing traditions that are a bit unusual. Peel Island also boasts an interesting history. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Visitors to Peel in 1856 described the peculiar customs of the knights and king of Peel. Although locals claim evidence of this motley royal court goes back as far as 1487. That was the year that a 10-year-old boy, Lambert Simnel, stormed Peel Island with a ragtag army of 8,000 English and Irish dissidents, as well as German mercenaries, and claimed to be the rightful Earl of Warwick in a challenge to the English throne. King Henry VII's forces crushed this rebellion in 12 days, but the child got through his insurrection unscathed. He even became the king's falconer in later years. End quote. Part of the public search for a new king, in addition to the previous one retiring, is to bring attention to the island's tourism prospects, which faltered during the pandemic. Plus, the comparatively light-hearted follies of the Peel Island royals are a nice distraction from the controversies happening in the UK's main royal family, not to mention its parliament today. The UK's institutions are faltering a bit, but Peel Island is standing strong. 
Lufthansa Group, the parent company of many European airline carriers, including Brussels Airlines, Swiss International Airlines, Austrian Airlines, and Lufthansa, says that it will be forced to fly 18,000 flights without any passengers this winter unless the European Union changes their regulations. Empty flights, or so-called ghost flights, have been an unfortunate staple of the pandemic from the beginning. Faced with an extreme reduction of passengers, airlines around the world continued flying in order to retain their coveted and crucial takeoff and landing slots at airports. In the EU in particular, this use-it-or-lose-it policy stipulates that airline carriers fulfill at least 80% of their scheduled flights or lose those slots. In addition to not wanting to bow to competitors and continuing to see a light at the end of the tunnel of the pandemic, carriers never want to lose those slots because losing them creates a scheduling nightmare out of the already overly complicated logistics of scheduling their flights every day. Now, the EU did cut that policy down to 50% from 80 during the pandemic, a policy that'll continue at least through March and perhaps through the summer, but airline carriers like Lufthansa says it's still too much. Quoting Gizmodo, After the 50% threshold was announced, the Director General of the International Air Transport Association described the decision as out of touch with reality. The association, which represents nearly 300 airlines that comprise 82% of global air traffic, had estimated international travel would be about 34% of 2019 levels by the end of 2021, and that was when the Omicron variant was just a twinkle in the pandemic's eye. End quote. As an IATA spokesperson put it, even that 50% requirement, quote, has clearly been unrealistic against the backdrop of the current crisis. End quote. The Airports Council International Europe disagrees. The Director General Olivier Jankovic said, quote, A few airlines are claiming they're forced to run high volumes of empty flights in order to retain airport slot usage rights. There is absolutely no reason why this should be the reality. Talk of ghost flights and of their environmental impacts seems to hint at a doomsday scenario which has no place in reality. Let's stick to the vital task of recovering and rebuilding together. End quote. And budget airline Ryanair, meanwhile, said that Lufthansa should just sell cheaper tickets to fill their flights. Meanwhile, quoting from Mike, It's not just Europe that has skies full of empty planes, either. In the United States, a similar policy requires carriers to meet 80% of their scheduled takeoffs and landings. That policy was waived back in October 2020, but it seems airlines have nonetheless been shifting their empty planes around the country. A report from energy trade publication E&E News found that while the number of passengers in late 2020 had declined by 96% from the year prior, airlines had only reduced the number of flights by 58 percent during the same period, suggesting that plenty of planes were traveling with few or no passengers on board. The EU is now exploring the possibility of further tweaking its use-it-or-lose-it rule, per the Independent, with industry groups seeking more flexibility to keep these wasteful flights out of the air. For airlines, the motivation is financial, fuel is expensive, and running these flights without a single ticket sold is costing them money. But these flights are also harming the planet. Air travel is responsible for about 2.5% of our global carbon emissions, and burning fuel for no reason other than to meet outdated and arbitrary requirements isn't helping anyone." End quote. 
All that said, there were a lot of global passenger flights that got filled with more cargo than usual during the pandemic and even became a premium alternative at certain peaks of the shipping container shortage. So I suppose that's always one way to at least give these flights a purpose if they have to be flown at all. Well, Girl Scout cookie season is upon us here in the U.S., and in addition to the usual lineup of Thin Mints, Samoas, and Tagalongs, or Caramel Delights and Peanut Butter Patties, depending on where you live, see the August 19th, 2020 episode of this show for an explainer on that double naming system. The Scouts have also launched a new cookie for 2022. It's called Adventurefuls. The Adventurefuls are sea salt brownie-inspired cookies topped with caramel-flavored cream, and they look pretty awesome. In addition to the new cookie, the other big news of cookie season is that the Girl Scouts will once again be organizing virtual and contactless drive through cookie stands, as well as partnering exclusively with DoorDash for on-demand cookie orders. Looks like that's only launched in certain markets so far, but should be coming to most of the country in February. And while looking this all up, I stumbled on an absolutely wild admission from Ryan Seacrest yesterday about how he eats Girl Scout cookies. Apparently, as a kid, he and his fellow Cub Scout buddies would put thin mints in their cereal bowl and then pour the milk and cereal on top to create a kind of minty chocolate milk. Now, that actually sounds kind of good if you like mint, but Seacrest says his favorite cereal for the hack? Grape nuts. I mean, my man... Oh, I mean, now, granted, I haven't been able to come up with a cereal that I think would be particularly good with a Thin Mint, but Grape Nuts really doesn't seem like it. Would love to hear your suggestions, though. Tweet at me, Jack is not a bird. What cereal you think would be best paired with a soggy Thin Mint at the bottom? Clearly the height of fine dining. But that is it for me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.